North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Dr. Victor Cha and I are joined today on The Impossible State by a very special guest, Dr. Chung Min Lee, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a university professor at the Korea Advanced Institute for Science and Technology. He's also chairman of the International Advisory Council at the IISS, the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Dr. Lee has a book that's going to be coming out in summer 2023. It's about Korea's defense choices, and it'll be published by IISS in the summer. He also, incidentally, has a report out today about Korea's need for a bottom-up security review. So it's really good that we have you here today, and we're very fortunate. Welcome. Thank you so much, Andrew, for that wonderful introduction. It's always a pleasure to join my old and dear friend, Victor. We go back for more than, goodness gracious, at least 20, 25 years, Victor. So it's always great to see an old friend. So I wanted to ask you, Chungmin, what is Korea's need for a bottom-up security review? And is it coincidental that Japan's doing the same thing right now? I think one of the things that I want to impress upon your listeners here in the U.S. and worldwide is the fact that since 1987, when Korea became a democracy again, and we've had a number of both conservative and progressive governments, every single government that's been in power since 87 have done a defense review or a defense commission review. And some improvements have been made, but nothing has been done on the scale of a comprehensive national uh, security review. And the reason I state this, Andrew, is the fact that national security has changed tremendously over the last 30, 40 years. We're facing not only a nuclear North Korea, but a much more robust China. You've got cyber threats, you've got economic and technology wars coming down your alleyway. So overall, Korea is in need, in my personal view, of a comprehensive bottom-up review. And Victor, tell me your thoughts on this. First of all, Chungmin is like one of the leading uh, national security experts in Korea. And so the fact that he's put together this report, I think it's important. The timing is very important. You know, we're at the start of a new government uh, in South Korea, a new, uh, more conservative government, very focused on national security, focused on the North Korea problem, but also the problem of, uh, of China, the war in Europe. And so the idea of advocating for some sort of bottom-up review makes sense. I mean, here in the United States in the past month and a half, we've seen a whole bunch of national security documents come out, the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, the missile defense review, the nuclear posture review. So having something similar like this for Korea makes a lot of sense. I mean, I mean, you know, Korea is like the, what is it? It's the 10th largest economy, the sixth strongest military in the world. So makes perfect sense. And it, it, it would be well advised for the South Korean government to to undertake something like this. For the United States, Korea is such an important partner, not just with regard to North Korea, but 
Increasingly, globally, Korea is a very important partner. Uh, Korea has fought with the United States in every war since the Korean War. And what they think and do on strategy, increasingly on issues like China, Taiwan, coordination with Japan, support of whatever sort in the in the, in the war in Europe is, is very important and valued by the administration. So I think a report like this, um, which is released. They're going to do a rollout on it, I think, in a week or so. I, I think it's very important. I'm very curious to see what he has to say about what they need to do. Well, without going into Tory detail, because this is the reason why I'm on this podcast is because this is your show. And I really do want to talk about a number of issues that you want to put on the table, Victor. But just in, in two seconds, one of the reasons why I, I wrote this report for Carnegie is the fact that I think by the end of the year, the new Yun Song-yeon government is going to publish their own white paper, defense white paper, and we'll talk about a, a number of issues that they're grappling with as we speak. But my main argument in this report is that it's not just defense. It's the entire national security apparatus. It includes your intelligence community. It includes, for example, the modalities going forward on the U.S. ROK uh, alliance, as we, as we know and perhaps even new niche markets of cooperation with, for example, critical NATO allies. So what I try to do is, is emphasize the fact that it's crucial to have some type of a bipartisan national security approach in Korea, but it's nearly impossible now, as you know, because the opposition Democratic Party, they have a 170-odd seat majority in the 300-seat parliament. And until April 24, when you have the next general election in South Korea, the Yoon Suk-yeol government has a minority in the parliament. As a result, the opposition is basically blocking almost all of his domestic and foreign policy agendas. So although it's impossible nearly anyways to have a bipartisan consensus on critical national defense and national security issues, I argue that still the government must take a much larger bird's eye view. Let's dig into that bird's eye view a little bit. What are some of the most important issues in this review for our listeners to be thinking about? This is something that Victor and I were talking about and listening this morning. In fact, uh, coincidentally, it's because, for example, let's take economic security, right? So we, we're coming through, we're coming out of a three-year global pandemic, Andrew. We are in the midst of this brutal war in Ukraine. We're all concerned about potential conflicts, for example, uh, in the Taiwan Strait. Who knows what the North Koreans may or may not do with a seventh nuclear test. And so the entire fabric has changed dramatically over the last 30, 40 years. So while the menu has expanded exponentially in many respects, the bureaucracy, the personnel, the doctrine have remained fairly unchanged. And so my whole question is, if you're dealing with a very different national security, I guess, world as it is today and over the next four or five years, and yet the paradigm, the framework by, with coping with these issues have remained basically, in my view, unchanged over the last 60, 70 years, something is out of sync. Victor, what's your take? I, you know, I tend to agree with that. Um, I mean, let's just take one example, which Chungman mentioned, economic security, right? This was something that really was not on the radar screen much for Korea until 2016, 2017, when 
the U.S. emplacement of a missile defense battery in Korea then led to all this Chinese economic coercion. And then following that, you know, we had other cases of economic coercion against Korea and against countries in the region by China as well. And, and, and now we have this onslaught of U.S. legislation and other uh, ideas about export controls, of which Korea is a key player. Right. I mean, many of these things can't happen. This strategy of trying to compete with China and maintain a technological edge, sort of in commanding heights technology can't happen without uh, without cooperation of Korea. So, you know, the security paradigm, as Jungman called it before, was all about, you know, North Korea, ground invasion. You know, maybe we're talking about cyber and, you know, ICBMs and stuff. But um, in the broader scheme of things, there's this whole new area of national security concerns that matter greatly for policy and for the alliance. You know, I mean, Chungmin, again, knows that Korean national security establishment better than I do. Are they ready for that? Are they ready for that conversation? I mean, we were talking about like the big innovation in the presidential office has been this new Uh, position in economic security, but like, is one person enough to deal with all of these issues? Probably not. And again, it wouldn't matter if it wouldn't, this would not impact Korea's national security equities and the alliance as much if Korea was not a major player, but it is a major player on these issues, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, semiconductors or even biotech, um, you know, Another way of putting it is that this area of competition in U.S.-China relations overlaps a lot with areas of growth that the U.S. ROK talk about in the alliance, right? When we're talking about quantum computing, space, out, you know, outer space, artificial intelligence, there's a lot of overlap between these areas of competition and the areas that the alliance wants to grow in. So. South Korea has to be ready. Like they have to be ready to to have this conversation, and they have to be ready in terms of their government to formulate a strategy and a policy. And you know, Andrew, this is not a problem that's unique to South Korea. If you look at the top ten economies in the world, including you know the U.S. and Japan and Korea and so on, no government really has a functioning mechanism that enables it to make. You know, critical policies. Let me just give you one example. If you take any, you know, economic security related uh, policies, whether the South Koreans join Chip Four, for example, there's going to be blowback by the Chinese. And so, the moment you join your American ally on Chip Four or any other high tech related, I guess, mechanism, you've got to be prepared for pushback from the Chinese, either on the political front. On Chinese policies towards North Korea, on cooperation or not, as the case may be, in the UN Security Council, or even economic boycotts, as we saw uh, with the THAAD controversy that that Victor alluded to. So this puts the Korean government or other advanced economies in a really tight spot because you don't really have all that much leverage. But if if you don't think about these issues beforehand, all I'm arguing is that you're going to run into Uh, much much darker spaces. One of the key issues that I I would like to ask Victor is we've got to bring in greater number of private companies into the dialogue. In other words, governments don't have the expertise nor the personnel on talking about AI or computing or encryption or hypersonics. You you know, the the issue goes on. But as all of these technologies are are converging at, at the speed of light, Government policy is still what five, maybe even ten years 
behind. And so how do you bring in corporations into the national security space so that they're able to provide critical technology information and so forth, but at the same time, you do need firewalls so that you do compartmentalize what the government does versus what the private enterprises are able to do. But nonetheless, this is a problem that is not unique to Korea, but I think the magnitude of the problems coming down the pipeline are really crucial for the Korean government. I would add to that is that the problem is, you know, it's multiplied in the case of Korea because unlike Japan, right, um, where there's a pretty cooperative relationship between government policy and the corporations, that's much less the case in Korea, right? Mm -hmm. The the chebols, the conglomerates kind of act with autonomy. And so um, closing that gap is important. And then the other thing I would say is that the thing that we're at now, this this Trans-Pacific Dialogue is a good example of the thing that Chung Min is talking about, which is, you know, bringing together private sector and public sector and experts um, to look at these issues of economic security holistically rather than very parochially, right? I mean, you know, the on the one hand, you have government bureaucrats and legislators who are trying to hammer out new laws for the United States that leave our allies behind. You have allies that, you know, don't want to be closed out of the loop and end up like as Korea ended up in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And then you have companies that, you know, are thinking of it largely in commercial terms, like I don't want to do this, like I don't want to lose the China market. Why should I do this? So um, it all has to be knitted together. Again, not just in Korea, but even here in the United States. I mean, you know, there are many U.S. companies that are not happy with the uh, export controls on chips. So, I mean, that's a sort of long way of saying the work that Chungmin is doing is is specific to Korea. But of course, it's something that's relevant to a lot of what a lot of other countries are dealing with in this arena of economic security competition with China. Well, I wanted to ask both of you about who's actually doing the knitting. First, I should say you're both at the Salamander Resort outside of D.C. for a Trans-Pacific Dialogue. And um, thanks for both of you for making a little bit of time to do this today. But I wanted to ask about who's doing the knitting. How is President Yoon doing so far? Well, you know, I was talking to a couple of people not too long ago. There was a conference. Um, I don't want to mention the country specifically, but of course, you'll know what it is. And so we were talking about a number of issues, and I had mentioned the fact that for democracies, it's very difficult to put into place a comprehensive national security or defense policy because you're a democracy. You've got to deal with the free press. You've got to deal with public opinions. You've got to deal with interest groups and, of course, you know, finicky neighbors. And when I mentioned this, the person said, well, you know, in our country, uh, the leader speaks with one voice, and we do this and we do it. So there is linearity and consistency. But I argued, well, that's fine in the case of your country because, uh, you know, but in a liberal democracy like South Korea or Japan, or even Taiwan, as the case may be, you're dealing with a very different type of issues. So the key issue going forward is, is South Korea able to imagine, Andrew, a new national security space? And... They are thinking about it, but I think the so-called old-style politics, the fact that Korea is a very traditional society, and the toolkit is primarily geared and based on a robust U.S.-ROK alliance. That's great. That's something that Victor has worked all his life professionally to strengthen, and as I have as, as an academic. But 
the toolkit is is basically not really going to be all that useful on critical issues that are just emerging. And that's all I'm trying to really emphasize. And so this is a thought exercise as much as it is a, a, a policy exercise. There are, for example, every, twice a week I go down to Taejon because I, I'm also affiliated with a, a very large university in Korea called KAIS. As you mentioned briefly, it's Korea's MIT, the Korea Advanced Institute for Science and Technology. And there are about, I think, 20 or even a larger number of government-funded think tanks that have been around for the last 50 or, or so years. Everything from nuclear energy to advanced propulsion systems, and, and, and the list goes on. And I've always argued over the last year and a half as I was reading, writing this report that the Korean government must really work in consort with these think tanks because they're the ones who really have the cutting edge knowledge, but their ability to join in this discussion so far is quite limiting. Let's shift a little bit to Japan-Korea relations. You've alluded to that in this security context. Where do we see, to both of you, where do we see Japan-Korea relations right now and where are they going? You know, President Yoon Sung-yeol, when he came to office in May, really emphasized two key words, liberal democracy. And he said, going forward, we have to become really conscious about our values. And this is why he has really emphasized rapprochement between Korea and Japan. As everybody knows who are listening to this podcast, or nearly everybody anyways, in my view, there are a number of historical issues that basically has, I guess, made the relationship very difficult over the last four or five plus years. This issue will never be resolved overnight. But I think what President Yoon brings to the table is the fact that, look, he's saying, look, the reason why we need a stronger ROK-Japan relationship is because it strengthens the U.S.-Japan-Korea trilateral security cooperation. And, and that in itself also bolsters NATO and the broader Western alliance. And I think the president has been very brave in that way because it takes a lot of political capital to say you want to improve relations with the Japanese, you want to have naval exercises with the Americans and the Japanese forces. And these are all very sensitive issues. But so as a result, the president has had a very rough headwind over the last six months. Economically, the Korean economy is not really growing all that strongly. He's faced, as I said, enormous opposition in the National Assembly. And yet he has said, I'm going to strengthen the alliance with the, with the Americans because it is the bedrock of our foreign policy. I want to strengthen and restore ties to the Japanese. And those two big issues have taken the gulf of his time and effort over the last six months. Andrew, as you know, we CSIS, we were in Korea last week uh, for our annual conference with Jung Ilbo, and we did go around and see folks. We saw the foreign minister, the um, and we did spend some time with the president. And what struck me about the conversation with the president was two things. The first, as Changwin said, is this commitment to freedom and democracy. It's real. Like, you can see it. He genuinely feels this way. In part, I think, and and it's healthy in in a sense. It's particularly healthy and genuine because, as Chungmin knows well, this guy did not do foreign policy before he became the president. He was a prosecutor, and so he had to learn about foreign policy. And rather than focusing on eight hundred different issues, he focused on what he believed in when he thinks about what is his inner compass when it comes to foreign policy. Like, how does he know what's right and what's not right? And it was freedom and democracy, right? That's what he focused on. And 
And so, you know, you know, people say things during a campaign, but when you sat down and talked to him, you could really feel it. Like he really does. But this is his compass when it comes to foreign policy. And then and that affects the way he looks at China. Uh, you know, that's the way he looks at the war in Ukraine, these sorts of things. So it was very instructive. The other is you can have these ideals, but you have to have one particular project that you really want to focus on out of the gates. And he very clearly has made this the relationship with Japan. Right. Which was about as bad as it could possibly. I don't I mean, Chungman, I think, would agree it was it could not have been any worse than it was a couple of years ago. It really hit rock bottom. And in many ways, the relationship with the Japan is about improving relations with Japan. But it's also about, you know, if you improve relations with Japan, that's good for the alliance. It's good for uh, South Korea's desire to play a more uh, regional and global role because, you know, in sort of the network of regional and global institutions, Japan is an important player. Certainly, it's about dealing with the North Korea threat. So, you know, he chose that as the topic you wanted to focus on. And, you know, as we all know, right, in international relations theory, the most credible foreign policies are ones where there's costly signaling. Right. And this is costly. This is not easy. As Chongling said, this is not easy for the South Korean president to do. Right. He's sticking his neck out, facing domestic opposition um, and to, to, to send this message that he wants to improve relations with Japan, even when the Kishida government is a little ambivalent about doing that. And the fruits of this labor have, have, have started to emerge. The you know, we had Kurt Campbell this morning at this uh, Salamander Dialogue where he talked about the trilateral leader statement in Cambodia among the three countries, the U.S., Japan and Korea. Major statement. We've never had anything like this among with the three countries. We've had it between be, in bilateral, but we've never had it in three countries. And of course, that was something through the hard work of, you know, our U.S. government, the uh, presidential office in Korea and the prime minister's office in Japan. But you got to give Yun a lot of credit for that because he was willing to push hard enough on Japan that it, it you know, caused the Japanese finally to stop sitting, you know, sitting way back and start leaning forward. And the fruits of that were evident in this wide ranging, very concrete statement uh, among these three major democracies in Asia. I think you got to give a lot of credit to Kurt Campbell and to the Biden administration for this as well, don't you? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Like I would never not give credit to my good friend Kurt. Of course, <laughs> I give him a, a lot, a lot of credit for that. But like it would have if it was just the United States pushing this. Right, Chungman, it would be very hard to do. You're absolutely right. You know, Andrew, I just wanted to share a couple of anecdotes. This year, a number of tragic things happened. Uh, we've gone through the Ukrainian war. It's still ongoing. Uh, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated. That was a tragedy for Japan in many respects. We had the unfortunate, terrible tragedy of the Itaewon Stampede. And so, you know, both countries suffered in very different ways, a different political shock to the system, as it were. But one thing that I think President Yoon did very well In August 15th, every single year, it's our National Liberation Day speech. And for many Korean presidents, it's the best day to basically bash Japan because it brings brownie points at home. And one thing that President Yoon did not do this year, as I think he will throughout his presidency, is he does not want to exploit the so-called Japan card for domestic political gain. And that takes a lot of guts for a Korean president. Because he believes in his heart, as Victor said, that freedom and democracy really do matter. It's not just, you know, bumper stickers. 
And so that's one thing that he emphasized in the speech in August 15th this year, that he really wants to improve Korean-Japanese ties because there's so much more that unites these two countries in a very, very dangerous and brave new world. A couple of days ago, the president gave an interview, I believe it was Reuters, where he talked about the fact that China has to step up. And one thing that he emphasized was that if the Chinese do not, you know, make sure that they influence North Korean behavior, well, they're going to be faced by greater South Korean and Japanese defense responses. I don't think any Korean president has ever mentioned that in an interview, as far as I can recall, maybe uh, if you can correct my memory, Victor. And when I read that interview, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. What the president was telling the Chinese indirectly through this interview was that unless the Chinese do something concrete to really control North Korean behavior, whether they can or not, that's a secondary issue. Well, as long as they maintain the status quo and only pay lip service to denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula, quote unquote, then what the president was saying was, well, the Americans, our best allies uh, with the Japanese and the Koreans will take collective action. And that's a message that I think is very, very powerful. What do you think, Victor? No, I think that's important. You know, they tried to get, uh, as you remember well, during the Obama administration, they tried to get a collective action, collective security type statement at the foreign minister level, right? That, you know, our friends uh, Kim Tae-hyo and others were working on this. And then in the end, uh, the Koreans just couldn't do it. They backed out. It was just domestically too difficult to do. You know, if you read that Cambodia document, they get about as close as you can get to something like that, again, which is not easy to do. Now, having said that, the external environment has changed also, as Changman said, a great deal. And this is in part reverberations from the war in Europe and and uh, the situation in China, Taiwan. So but again, I give I give a lot of credit. You know, obviously, I give credit to our friends in the in the administration here in D.C., but, you know, this was not an easy lift for the UN government. And I, I agree, Victor, that the Japanese government, you know, Prime Minister Kishida on down, they have not been perhaps as rapidly, I guess, receptive to Korean initiatives. But at the same time, that's the way the Japanese government works. It is a much more slow paced uh, machine, as you know. They're much more deliberative in many respects. So I think we've got to, we've got to also give Prime Minister Kishida some time. And I think by the end of the year, certainly by the beginning of next year, I'm hoping that the two leaders will have a bilateral summit, either in Korea or Japan, and that as they did before uh, in the initial years of the Lee Myung-bak administration, have a so-called, you know, Korea-Japan or Japan-Korea shuttle, whereby with minimal protocol, these two leaders are able to meet, not just in their capitals, but in other cities if, the, uh, if, if there's a need to do so. So where does this all leave us with North Korea and with China? I mean, at the same time as the Yun government's talking about freedom and democracy, uh, Xi Jinping at the 20th Party Congress is talking about a new era that's built on defense and technology um, and certainly not <laughs> freedom and democracy coming from China. So where does this leave the U.S., Korea, Japan with China and North Korea? That's a great question. I'm sure Victor has his own thoughts on, on the issue. But quickly, my, my whole thought on this is, at least in the duration of the UN administration for the next four and a half years, 
the president is going to emphasize the fact that, yes, we have critical, you know, political, economic, especially ties to the Chinese. At the same time, however, our national security defense is basically with the Western Alliance and the Americas. And he has made that very, very clear. So there's less ambiguity in Korea's posture compared to, for example, the previous government that was in power for the last five years. And I think that one statement of much clearer stances with the Americans, with our Japanese friends, with Australians, with our NATO partners. A month after President Yoon was inaugurated, Andrew, he attended the so-called NATO AP4 meeting in Madrid. So together with the Australian, New Zealand, and Japanese leaders, for the first time, you had these four Asian leaders meeting with their uh, NATO counterparts in Madrid. And I think that really symbolized, in my mind anyways, not that Korea is going to play any central role in, you know, in, in, in beefing up European security or even vice versa, but the very fact that a Korean president is attending a NATO summit meeting talking about out-of-area issues with the American president and his, his NATO counterparts, as well as his, his Asian friends, was something that I never really expected. And that basically is reality today. And so I think in that respect, as long as President Yoon remains in office, he's not going to be an anti-China guy. There's not going to be any dramatic you know, changes in Korean policy postures, but on critical benchmarks on human rights, on democracy, freedom of the press, the fact that we have you know, a, a critical free alliance, those are all issues where the president has said unequivocally and straightforwardly, we're basically with our American friends. And honestly, that's a very refreshing voice to, to hear. Victor, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think that's all, that is all reassuring and comforting to hear. I mean, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I do, I did get a sense also that, you know, his views on North Korea and China, you know, do stem from these core values that he holds with regard to foreign policy. And in the case of, in the case of North Korea, you know, this is it's it's very difficult for anybody to come up with a policy on this. I, I, Chongmin and I actually are are while doing this podcast are missing the North Korea discussion at the <laughs> Salamander <laughs> because no one's going to have any good ideas for that anyway. Because they're just going to say there's nothing we, we don't have any leverage. There's nothing we can do right now, right? But I think that when we are in situations like this, and this is not the first time we've been in this situation with North Korea, the important thing is to focus on allied coordination. And that is, uh, you know, airtight right now among Washington, Seoul and Tokyo. So that's what's important, whether you're talking about contingency planning, exercising, extended deterrence, these sorts of things. On China, you know, these this is obviously the, the biggest and most difficult issue for any South Korean government. Um, I give the Yun government credit for not sort of in a knee-jerk fashion, uh, responding in a conciliatory fashion to every threat or suggestion of economic coercion by China. Um, that that sort of shadow always hangs over Korea as it hangs over over many countries. And to think very carefully about what strategy that they're, they're going to take. I mean, I think that's, you know, you know you can, it's very clear. The South Koreans were very clear in terms of what they wanted to do on the alliance and with Japan, right? On China, they've been much more cautious, certainly not leaning forward, much more cautious. Not negative, not saying we want to contain China, but they've been very careful. 
And that caution itself sends a very strong message to Beijing. So you see how Xi Jinping is now so um, solicitous of the South Koreans. You know, the Chinese are now like begging the South Koreans for track 1.5, track 2 meetings, because, you know, they're concerned about a Korea that used to be basically, um, you know, under their thumb in the previous administration. And they see that, that that's not the way this administration is going to behave. You know, Andrew, I want to emphasize to our listeners that on the China issue, I think the Yun government's thinking on this is basically what Victor has just laid out. I would just add that over the last three, four years, public opinion has shifted dramatically against China and South Korea. Every single poll, whether it's the Asan Institute or even the Pew Global poll in the U.S. and others in South Korea, the level of animosity that Koreans feel towards the Chinese has never been higher. It's about 70, 80 to 90%. And so uh, on the flip side, then, South Korea has one of the highest pro-American views, which was not the case in the early 2000s, as you recall, Victor. But the fact that as a result, South Korean public looks at China and says, look, okay, we have, we've had this 2,000 years of historical tie with the Chinese, uh, this is a relation that goes back, as I said, several centuries. But today they look at China and they say, wow, this is a political machine that is determined to have a new type of a Suzuan relationship, uh, you know, of the fact that China is a rising a great power and superpower and she wants to place middle powers, you know, into, into, into their nest. And that's something that, that the Koreans basically res- uh, you know, resent deeply. So these polls reflect the fact that the Koreans, for the first time, I think, are now waking up to the fact that just being nice to the Chinese, including, you know, engagement with North Korea, uh, for example, really hasn't resulted in policy changes. And so that's why the Korean public is arguing, my goodness, if these engagement and pro-Chinese or pro-North Korean policies have not really resulted in changes, then of course we've got to redouble our efforts and strengthen our most important leverage, which is what? Our alliance with the U.S. and our ties with Japan and our ties with other like-minded states, both in Asia and, of course, in Europe. And that's a realization that for the first time, as a result, the South Korean public has a global view on what China basically means for the region and the ROK. Gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. I appreciate your time today and for ducking out of the conference and even missing the North Korea session. We will love to have you back soon, Dr. Lee. Victor, is always such a pleasure to have you. So thanks so much, guys. No, Andrew, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. And as I said earlier, after having attended these conferences for the last 30 odd years, Victor and I have known each other for a long time. I just want to let the audience know that Working with someone like Victor over the last 30 years, not only as a colleague, but as a friend, is one of the key benefits of being in this business. We are not in this business to get rich. And so therefore, having a colleague like Victor at CSIS and at Georgetown over the last 30 odd years has been a huge benefit to the Alliance. I'm just very happy that we're here together at the same place. That's very kind of you, Changmin. Uh, the check is in the mail. <laughs> Thanks. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, 
email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.